Welcome to the Gen X Movie Show, brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook, America's top-rated sportsbook app. Before I get started, I'd like to talk to you about Blanchard Family Wines, located between 18th and 19th, and Blake and Wazee in beautiful lower downtown Denver, Colorado, just a couple blocks away from Coors Field, right in the middle of the dairy block. Um, festive season, we're getting really close to, uh, to Christmas, so you may, I would get in now if you want to give a virtual wine tasting um, uh, a shot as, as a gift. Go to bfwdenver.com and look for that. But uh, I would just kind of go in and get your wine. Um, just uh, 2017 Cabernet is my favorite one. Um, it's the official Jeff Morton drink of the CSG podcast. Um, uh, or there could be, you know, anything else. If you like Rieslings, uh, um, you know, Western Slope wineries uh, are specialized in that. And they got partnerships with two of them, Storm Cellars and uh, uh, Restoration. And uh, both, I'm, I'm told, are pretty good. I've had uh, uh, Storm Cellars one. It was actually pretty good. I'm not a big fan of Rieslings, but it was good. Um, so, but even more than that, wine's a good gift. So go to bfwdenver.com or go to Facebook or Instagram under Blanchard Family Wines and just kind of reach out to them and order your bottles. And they deliver in the city of Denver. They ship and they, um, you know, you can go down there and do curbside pickup. Once again, they're located between 18th and 19th in Blake and Wazee in beautiful lower downtown Denver, Colorado, just a couple blocks away from Coors Field, right in the middle of the dairy block. When you go in, tell them Jeff Morton from CSG Podcast sends you there. What's up, everybody? Thank you all for joining us on the latest Gen X Movie Show. I am one of your hosts, Jeff Morton, and joining me as always today is uh, my friend from Somewheresville, Colorado, um, my friend, Magnus. Hello, Magnus. Yeah, good to see you. <laughs> Sorry. Hello, Lemmy. I just woke up. Little, little frog in the throat. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. Um, Matt and I, or Magus and I, have known each other for how long now? Very long. 25, 26 years, maybe even longer. At least 17 months. Yeah, at least. Um, and uh, we share a love of uh, horror movies, and that's why uh, he, Magnus, and I have been doing this uh, for basically primarily focusing that on that for a while. And... It occurred to me later earlier this week that uh, to celebrate the festive season for us, uh, nothing is better to uh, watch than the movie Black Christmas and to talk about and to review. Um, this movie came out in 1974, and uh, it is a product of Canada. Um, it stars uh, Margot Kidder, Andrea Martin from SCTV fame, and uh, John Saxon. Um, it the is great John Saxon. The, the, who recently passed away. I think he was, he, uh, John yep. Saxon passed away like a month ago. Um, so kind of let's, let's do a little uh, overview. Um, really, 1974, you didn't find a lot of movies like 
this. There, a, a lot of the movies in the 60s and the early 70s were kind of like the Hammer horror film or uh, uh, Roger Corman cheesy kind of Edgar Allan Poe-ish supernatural. And then you get into the early 70s, Vincent Price, uh, Dr. Fibes kind of movies. Um, but this was really kind of, and I, in my view, groundbreaking as what you could be deemed as a the first slasher film. Is that the way you read it too? Um, well, certainly that's how people think of it. Uh, first of all, can I just say I was way ahead of this curve. Hmm. Black is, is now a cult classic and it's written up about a lot for fans of the genre. But I was a fan of this long ago. I saw a VHS copy, <clears throat> rented it when I was a kid with a friend and couldn't believe it wasn't more well known. And the amount of people I've exposed this movie to, um, let's just say that's the, the, the nicest thing I've exposed people to. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> For court order, I have to make that clear. <laughs> right. <laughs> disclaimer, we need the disclaimer before every podcast. Um, but, but a fan for a long time it's a it's yeah. fantastic i'm glad it's it's it seems to me that the appreciation for it builds i see it more and more on like top horror movies all time list you know certainly probably the best we can talk about this later the best christmas themed horror movie ever right. right um and you know the 70s is interesting you had all the the genres that you cited but also you know rosemary's baby the exorcist right. yep. um i think it was a great time for horror because there were so many versions of it so many branches the Rosemary's Baby, the highbrow, Sore Exorcist, highbrow cinema, uh, widely, you know, well-reviewed. But then you also have the same year that Black Christmas came out. Yeah. The classic Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So it was just a really fertile time for the genre. And this is definitely one of the gems of the era. It is certainly, and, 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 and we, will, we will talk about this. This is the best thing um, Canada ever produced. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, is, are they are they better than Rush? The Seagrams people might take it. <laughs> <laughs> how about uh, how about uh, RC Cola? <laughs> <laughs> You're gonna have the McKinsey brothers banging on your door later. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting looking at this, thinking like Andrea Martin, who is stars in this movie. I'd only saw it, seen her in uh, SCTV, which is a Canadian, you know sketch comedy thing that really bizarre but it was a canadian sketch comedy thing in the late 70s early 80s um and it's an interesting interesting exploration because this is the and maybe you can answer this question is this the first movie black christmas is it the first movie based on an urban legend um, um because this, it really maybe. is a urban legend i mean it comes directly from someone calling from inside the house you know that's, yeah yeah I think it's a it's an amalgamation of two things that that old urban legend um, babysitter with the man hiding upstairs mm -hmm. and the I think a series of actual murders that took place in Montreal at some point in the fifties or sixties and uh, but it's a perfect blending so let's let's just talk about how groundbreaking this film was right um, so it establishes a couple of tropes that are used again and again and again number one the the last girl the final girl right um the girl who lasts till the end etc 
um, the calling upstairs, calling from inside the house, um, the point of view of the serial killer or antagonist. Right. Um, I don't know if this was the first one to do that, but it was certainly the first one to make it such a big part of the the movie, the film, which right. John Carpenter later ripped off. We can talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of firsts in this movie. Now, some people will say that Psycho was the first slasher film, and I can see that. I think you can make a strong case for that. But Psycho didn't set up a lot of things that were copied by hundreds of other films like Black Christmas did. Right. You know, I feel like Black Christmas was more like a template for a type of film. And I actually don't see any influence on Black Christmas from Psycho. And maybe that's another way to distinguish it. You see a direct uh, influence from Halloween to Black Christmas. But I don't see a lot of similarities between Black Christmas and Psycho. So I don't know. Do you consider Psycho the first slasher film? I always felt slasher films needed a spree kill, right? So you needed more than two, right? And, and while it's implied in Psycho, Psycho is just, you got Janet Lee's murder, and then you got the, the, the guy later that gets killed. Yeah. That's pretty much it. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a, I'm killing, you know, all these kids in this thing. I'm not like in Black Christmas. I think there's what, four murders? Um, and it's, yeah. it, it is, I think a slasher requires to a spree. However, you can see a template of isolation, of the trappedness of it within a, we don't have an option. This is a person who is, we don't under, we don't know who is doing this because you don't know the person is inside the house. By the way, if you haven't seen this movie, we're spoiling the fuck out of it. But uh, if, I would assume if you're if you're if you see the clicked on the title of this podcast, you will have seen this movie. So um, you haven't movie. Stop this podcast. Go watch the movie and then come back. Right. Um, and I think. I mean, what is your opinion? Because uh, I can't think of another slasher esque. Uh, film between Psycho and Black Christmas, 14 years. I, I, I can't think of any, at least in the time, in, in the time span of my knowledge, I can't think of any. At least in, at least in North American cinema, I would agree with you. Yeah. Um, but I think you make a good point about the, the spree aspect of it. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's another thing that Black Christmas um, sort of launched or, you know, began, which was the 10 Little Indians type of thing, you know, where people get picked off one by one. And I think that became such a feature of the genre that again, you don't really see it in Psycho. I guess the more I think about it, I think of Psycho as a, maybe a thriller or a suspense film, but it's not slash, it's not a slasher film because there's not enough slashing in it. Although the one film we get where there is a murder with the edged weapon is one of the most amazing scenes in all of cinema history. So it feels in our minds like there's more murder in it than there actually was. Well, I'll, I'll point this out. Have you seen the movie Frenzy? Uh, Alfred Hitchcock. Okay. 1972, I think, 73, right around there. That is a slasher film. Um, but it is done in a comedic way. And it it kind of goes against all the tropes, but it is a slasher movie. It is a slasher film uh, where there is spree killing going on. 
Um, but it is not done with the whole knife thing. So it's not quote unquote, you know, slasher. And the interesting thing about it is that's two Hitchcock films and frenzy predates, uh, silent or, uh, uh, black Christmas, but black Christmas seems to be more in line with what we see later with Halloween. So this movie kind of like, it has good actors in it and you got Margot Kidder, I mean, who's a good, good actress. You've got John Saxon, who's like, who has been in a ton of movies, particularly through the 70s. Um, and it was done on a $600,000 budget, which is actually pretty big for a horror film, believe it or not. Yeah, for sure. Uh, because Halloween was done on 150000 I think. And a lot of that was like set location. I mean, that was such a shoestring. But this was about 600000 and it made about $6 million at the box office, which is a financial success, but it's not a, you know, outward success. What I kind of been thinking about since uh, watching this film is how for a 70s film, and I, I sent this to you in a text last night, and it's still, that thought still is with me. For a 70s film, Black Christmas is very suspenseful. Um, and it is, if you were not, if you had never seen the movie, it could get to you. I mean, it is a lot of the sound of it. And that's something I kind of want to mention now. The sound and the phone calls are disturbing. Really, the sound when you think about them. Yeah. We got, we got to talk about the, the killer belly and the performance, the voice performance. But for those who don't know, the setup is uh, there's a sorority house in the middle of winter. There's a winter storm. It's Christmas. It's the night before everyone's leaving for Christmas break. And they're having a party in the sorority house. The killer breaks in and starts picking up the sorority girls one-on-one. Now, if that's all I told you, you could probably think of a hundred movies that that might be. Yeah, <laughs> right? Right. Party master, <laughs> and, right. Um, but there's a couple of things that make it really different. Um, first of all, you never see the killer. This is kind of what it's famous for. Right. You never see the killer. You don't know anything about him except what you can glean from his calls. And we can talk about that because that's an amazing, there's a lot packed in there. But you never see him. You never um, learn anything about him. Like the, the detective doesn't come in at the end and say, well, we solved the crime. Turns out Billy's, you know, Got a messed up uh, mental history or whatever. Yeah. We don't get any explanation. He just kind of arrives, lays his carnage out over the course of the film. Uh, there's a lot less carnage in it than you would think. Like you say, there's four or five kills, but um, he creates such a sense of dread among the protagonists that it's just it's just really thick, thick tension the whole way through. It's creepy. Um, it's extremely creepy. And, yeah, and then the ambiguous ending. Right. There's a there's a, a, an ending that is not extra, terribly satisfying to a lot of people. And I think it's probably one of the reasons it didn't get um, bigger in America. I know it did well in Canada. I think it didn't do as well as they'd hoped in the United States, partly because of a botched marketing campaign. Yeah. But I think they might have been appreciated earlier if it didn't have one of those really challenging, frustrating endings. Now, personally, I love it. I don't mind it at all. But I know other people who I've watched this movie with and they were into it right up until the end, and then they say, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> well, look at it this way. 
that was what came out and silent this movie came out during a time where there was a lot of anti-climax endings um uh, thinking of mccabe and mrs miller you know uh even even the mash the, the comedy has a as a kind of a ugh, not satisfying ending uh brewster mcleod i'm just naming altman films at this point um but they are just there are like movies that just came out during this time five easy pieces another anti-climax ending um they are things that don't give you the satisfaction and this one does not and it just leaves you with a uh feeling you know and it wasn't like a tagline for a sequel it was just basically like the way i put it is the build-up with the and there is uh the, the girl who survives the last the final girl her boyfriend yes uh, yeah. they are having a dispute because she wants to get an abortion. And there is that subplot that permeates the entire movie. And it's weird to think about now because of, you know, abortion's been, you know, legal in the United States, at least since 1973. But in 1974, that was brand new. And that really permeates this whole fucking movie. I mean, just this dispute over her wanting to get this abortion. And that kind of leads to the end where you think it's satisfying and it's not, right? <laughs> because they, they, they misdirected you completely. Yeah, I, I think the whole purpose of that subplot is just to make you be suspicious of and then dislike the boyfriend. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I don't find that it permeates the plot the way you do, yeah. other than as a vehicle for discord between, because you got to suspect someone, right? There's no surprise in if you didn't think it was this person all along. Yeah. So that's a, that's a contrivance that works, is very effective. Um, the performances are all good. The, the actors are interesting. They're all supposed to be college students, and they all look 35. I mean, does Margot Kidder look like a teenager to you in this movie? When she was young, she looked old. Exactly. <laughs> but I find that true of all of them. They just don't look yeah. like college kids. And often when I'm watching it, I kind of forget that they're supposed to be. Because it could have been any house with a lot of roommates, right? They could have been any age. Well, the house doesn't feel like a sorority house. It, they, it feels like a place where a bunch of girls live. Yeah. With a, well, matr yeah. With a matron. I mean, that's yeah. just... It's, that that that's part... Right. Yes. <laughs> I love how she's scrolling away booze everywhere. <laughs> but it doesn't, it, it doesn't feel like uh, a sorority house. I mean, we all have the cliched vision of what a sorority house looks like, right? Um, it, is a, it is not a frat house, but it is something that is where girl, it, it, it's a girl, it's a, a place where girls go to have, you know, the, the fraternization that you get with fraternities. It's, it's a sorority. Um, and there's a lot more girls there, and there was only yeah. five there. <laughs> there wasn't that many girls, and there was yeah, this the only, alcoholic matron. You know? Yeah, the only one who looks like she might be in college is the first one to go, actually, Claire. Mm -hmm. Who, um, and that you know, that's the only part that kind of reminds me they're supposed to be in college is because Claire's the first one to go. She right. looks the young, and her father comes to pick her up, you know, the next day or whatever and they can't find her so it's like oh yeah the father's coming to pick up his daughter from college for the right. holidays right. but you know again 
it didn't need to be in college. It could have just been a dad coming to pick up his daughter to go to Christmas dinner or something. Um, so yeah, I don't know why they felt like they have to say in college. It doesn't feel like it. The people are all very mature, other than Margot Kidder getting drunk and making uh, jokes about turtles having sex. <laughs> um, but, but they all look very mature. They all act very mature. Even the conversation that they, you know, the Jess has with Peter about the abortion and stuff. Um, it almost feels like two married couples. Have, you know, they seem more mature than, than maybe college kids have gotten dumber and less mature over the years because we're, we're, we're used to movies like Porky's or Porky's. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or was it uh, Slumber Party Massacre, Massacre or, <laughs> or something like that? It's just... Very yes. We... I was thinking about this just in a, in a, in a general sense, this is fits into, but the way the trope of it, even though it's supposed to be in a sorority, the trope of this fits in with some of the uh, slasher ethos, which is suburbia, suburbia, violence in suburbia, uh, which um, kind of comes on the heels of people leaving the cities and, and populating the suburbs and people. And, and I was wondering if it wouldn't be less effective if it was set in an urban area. I mean, this is a Canadian film. This is, they, their situation is different up there. Um, but you, I'm wondering if this, if this was inner city Detroit or inner city New York or inner city uh, Chicago or something like that, would it have been different than just being set in a supposedly college town where there's no, there's, there's no one besides cops in a sorority. <laughs> I think I think probably not. I mean, I think what makes it so effective is the sense of isolation and space. You know, um, anytime you're in a city or a heavily populated area, it's hard to get that sense of isolation right. that you need to make this. So, you know, if I could just put my head out and yell and 3,000 people are on the block, you know, it'd be hard to create that. So it really does feel like that house. I mean, I know they go to the police station, but... For the most part, it feels very like a bottleneck episode. You know, it's right. like people are forced into this situation because of weather, because of the time of the year, you know. Um, so, no, I don't think so. I do think you need that. And the wind is just how, I mean, that sound design is so amazing in this film. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about that because the voice acting, um, there is some... There is some dubbing, kind of like a Giallo film, but it's not extensive. Um, this is uh, <laughs> the the voiceover on the phone calls is is as I said earlier, it's fucking disturbing, and I think that really contributes to, particularly the first call, the first call that comes into uh, the house, which is not long after the movie starts, is really disturbing because you have no idea what he's saying yeah. you have no idea what he's saying and then he changes like that goes from completely nonsensical to i'm gonna fucking kill you right and how much do you think that just like contributes to the overall atmosphere of this movie it's amazing um you know the first we hear a number of phone calls that the killer makes that one of the girls picks up, usually Jess, the protagonist. And 
you know, it took me a long time to realize something was going on there. You know, when I first saw the movie, first, I don't know how many times I saw the movie, it's just my mind just wrote it off as, oh, crazy talk. He's just trying to scare them. It was only much later that I started to, after many repeat viewings, realize there was something going on in these calls yeah. that actually tells us a lot about the killer. And then it became really interesting to me. And I was like, oh, I thought this was just crazy talk all these years. Um, but to set the stage, so what people need to, if you haven't seen it, in the beginning of the film, you see the killer from his point of view climb up to the attic of this house, get into the house, and then go down and sort of start seeing what's going on below. Um, but, and then it's not long after that that the first call comes in, which, you know, all the girls listening on and the, the phone in the lobby. And it's clear that even though he just broke in, you just saw him break in, he had been calling the house before because Jess says it's, it's him again. Come listen or something. Right. Yeah. So right. we're actually coming into the action in the middle of it. We don't know how long he's been making these calls, why he chose that house. If he's targeting a particular student or what, but clearly he knows something about the house because he's been, he's been calling them and probably watching them even before he broke in. So for me, I always feel like, oh man, I'm just dropped into the middle of the situation that has been ongoing, right. um, which is interesting. And then the calls unfold and, you know, we got to talk about Agnes and Billy yes. and what's going on. There. So yes. explain to everyone what that who Agnes and Billy is and what, what's going on in those calls. Well, <laughs> My feeling, that's it. You know, I, I don't want to take up this whole podcast with me thinking, but I'll be honest with you. I never really thought about it because okay. it was just part of the, they, that experience was part of the atmosphere to me. <laughs> if that makes sense to you, I, I don't have, uh -oh. I don't have strong feelings on that part other than what obviously results right um i don't know what do you think well i think he's clearly playing several different characters oh you think so oh yeah no question because he'll say uh he'll be speaking i think as his mother mm -hmm. um and so first it's just him he calls himself billy and agnes who is, sounds like his sister and something's going on because and by the way, keep in mind, this is all in the context of calls that he's making to the students and they pick it up and they listen to this. Right. And what's happening is um, something is going on. Maybe he's re remembering a childhood memory or reliving or reenacting a childhood memory. He tells his sister, Agnes, we think it's his sister. Agnes, don't tell anyone what we did. Maybe there was some abuse going on there. And then there's a voice. Uh, it sounds like a male adult voice that's different than Billy's voice who says, you left Billy alone with Agnes? Oh my God, like he's yelling at his mother. And so you have him doing the voice of Agnes because sometimes he'll act like a scared little girl. Then he'll act like a scared, um, slightly menacing little boy. Then he does his father's voice and his mother's voice. And there are four different voices having conversations with each other, obviously talking about something horrible that happened. Now, a lot of people think who study this movie think that Billy killed his sister and then his parents 
and had been in another insane asylum or something. Okay, because one of the reasons I thought, uh, not, not to cut you off, but one of the reasons I thought it was just part of the atmosphere is that um, all of the murders themselves are very, they're not symbolic of what's going on on the phone, right? So to me, it was almost like it was a means to an end that maybe I wasn't, I mean, that, that's just my opinion, but uh, that maybe it wasn't as uh, um, purposeful that maybe this person uh, is just like nuts, just generally nuts, and he's killing just to kill. At least that's the way it came across to me. Because none of the murders other than uh, the first one seem to represent Billy and Agnes. You see what yeah. I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. And, but, you know, we don't know whatever went down in Billy's home. We don't right. know what it was. Right. I think that he seems definitely disassociated to me. Because not only does he speak in different voices, they seem like completely different personalities. Right. And... And also, when you get that glimpse of his eye, you know, you don't really see much of this killer at all. You see the shadow. You see this one great shot of his eye, a single eye peeking through the shadow. That that eye looks scared. Right. You know, I, it's unclear to me if even Billy knows what's happening or what he's doing. It might be just a complete dissociative or he's just an evil genius and that's how he wants it to seem. Well, it is so. It did, and what I love about it, and and you know, maybe you have the same opinion as this, but or or don't you can disagree. But I, I feel it's a part of the genius of this movie is that there's that there's there's the disconnect here, and there doesn't resolve it because this movie, I, I, this movie is a standalone. There's no way, and I what's one kind of what I love about it is it's you're not taking this and, and implying a sequel, right? Other than maybe you could say that at the end, but at the end, I think they're, all they're saying is they got the wrong guy. And I think that is it. And that's what I love about this movie is that it is a standalone and a lot of the questions go completely un, unresolved. And yeah. so what we've been talking about here with Agnes and Billy and the craziness of it, which is, let's face it, there's a baseline of this. It's the, the, the baseline of nuts. Obviously there's something wrong here with this guy's mentally ill but at the same time, these murders are extremely rational, except for, I, you know, it's interesting. One of the best parts of this movie is the last uh, girl, Olivia Hussey. She, uh, uh, the actress, Olivia Hussey, she, that kind of like, you know, when he's at the top of the stairs and you hear the, he's running after her. Uh, and that's the first time in the whole movie you see him get frenzied. Right. Yeah. That is, that's the first kind of like, Oh my God, this guy's frenzied. And that's the first time in that film because otherwise it's just, they're kind of like ambush killings. Right. But this is, yeah, this but is you have the scene of him in the attic. Yeah. Rocking the body and there's no one around. And then yeah. he just goes ballistic and starts trashing things. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, no one's watching him. So he's clearly, and he was rocking the dead body and calling her Agnes. And so, there's clearly a screw loose with him. It's interesting how that kind of um, this movie, and that, and we're talking about, by the way, this is this movie has Christmas in the title, and other than them doing some Christmas drinking, there's not there's no real Christmas in this. It's, it's a this is just a this is a just a movie about a a, a 
a, a psycho. And what is interesting about this is that it, this, the atmosphere of this movie is completely unique to this movie. I don't think I've ever watched a movie that gave you the feeling that this one does. And even, I mean, we could talk about the two remakes they did of this thing, <laughs> which failed completely to capture what was happening in that 1974 film. Um, you could, you, you look at this and you say, this is, uh, this is a movie that is mastered, absolutely mastered its own atmosphere. It knew exactly what it was going to do. It was a lower budget film and they executed it in my view perfectly. I mean, it was just one. Let's give credit to the director of this, by the way. Let me, what's the, the guy's the, the director is a guy named by, by the name of Bob Clark. By the um, way, Bob also directed Porky's. Oh yeah. Yeah. And also directed a Christmas story. Wow. Another Christmas movie, complete opposite genre. Um, wow, I did not know that. He was a very prolific, very, very um, respected director. And, you know, in Black Christmas and in A Christmas Story, he pulled off two enduring classics. Um, two Christmas but, you know, movies. <laughs> yeah, and he never wanted to go back to horror. In fact, um, I remember reading that John Carpenter, before making Halloween, asked Bob Clark, if you were you going to do a sequel to Black Christmas? And Bob Clark said, no. And Carpenter said, well, if you did, what would it be? And Bob Clark said, I thought about setting it the next autumn. And in the meantime, in between the two films, the killer had been caught and incarcerated in a psychiatric institute and then subsequently escaped, goes back to the house and starts stalking the new students there. And I was going to call it Halloween. Wow. And then John Carpenter went and made that movie and called it Halloween. And I know that Bob Clark felt like, um, I saw an interview with him. He didn't say Carpenter ripped him off, but he did say it would have been nice to get a little credit for the <laughs> title at least. So it's not only like an indirect influence, like John Carpenter saw Black Christmas yeah. and thought, oh, that's a neat movie. I'll make one like it. He actually took an idea from the director of Black Christmas that would have been the sequel to Black Christmas. <laughs> exactly. Um, oh, oh. He, he directed the movie Tribute. Okay. That's a, J Jack Lemmon. One of his best performances was in that movie. Oh, what a diverse director. Um, um, that, that's, you know, uh, he agree with the auteur theory. He used to say, Bob Clark used to say, I, my style changes depending on the needs of the script. You know, it's, it's the exact opposite of the auteur theory, which says that every film has to have your stamp and everyone should know what it is just by the style. Well, that's definitely different from uh, Carpenter, uh, oh, yeah. who is, has a sure. definitive style. Very um, intuitive. Yes. Uh, but uh, and we also did Murder by Decree with Christopher Plummer. Oh, wow. I'm going to I'm gonna have to pay more attention to Bob Clark. Um, Was killed um, not too long ago by being, I think, hit by a drunk driver on the Pacific Coast Highway, unfortunately. Yep. Now, yeah, 2007. Man, that's it. I, I just, it is, it's absolutely amazing how these guys can like do these, these films that are diametrically opposed to, I mean, no one would have associate Black Christmas with Christmas Story. No way. Those are two completely different universes. These those two movies. Um, but I think that, I think it, I respect this movie more than now that I've, I've seen this movie many times. 
And this is, I respected it more when I saw it recently. Um, and even though I always had an appreciation for it, but I really think it is a good movie. Because doing a horror movie good is, uh, I think, an accomplishment. Um, because they all tend to have, you fall into tropes, you fall into cliche. It's very easy to do with action movies and horror movies. Um, but this movie in particular doesn't necessarily blaze a trail, but it, it creates, and I think that's where I would like compliment Bob Clark. Uh, you created atmosphere in this movie that is really hard to like you're gonna to have to watch it. anyone who's listening if you haven't seen it you have to watch the movie it's just so creepy and unsettling the entire movie and i think it's almost to me it's just just in my opinion it's likely due to the phone calls i think the phone calls it's themselves are very unsettling it's the it's the phone calls come and combined with the fact that that's that's all you have about the killer Right. You don't see his face, you know, nothing about his background. Um, that's what makes them so evocative. And that's, of course, exactly what the remakes screwed up. Right. You know, the, the, the 2006 remake of Black Christmas made the same mistake that the Rob Zombie Halloween did, which is, I don't need to know. It's scarier if I don't know. I don't need to know everything about his childhood that made him a screw up murderer. You know, he just is. That's what makes it fascinating. Well, that was what carpenter did with halloween yeah and that's one of the why one of the reasons halloween's so good is because you have no idea other than loomis the the, the uh, doctor you have really no idea why this guy's doing this he's not explaining yeah. why he's just yeah. doing it right like a shark it's like it's like jaws on with a with a william shatner mask he's just doing it because he's doing it and i think yeah. this is very similar and maybe that's part of the slasher thing we've been talking about maybe you need that sort of thing. Although Friday the 13th, the first movie is brilliant. Yeah. The first movie, in, in the, 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 uh, we, we, I'm stepping on our second segment here, but the first Friday the 13th is brilliant that was subsequently completely ruined with all the sequels, right? For sure. So and I'm, uh, glad, I'm glad Bob Clark didn't make a sequel to this because yeah. um, it is kind of perfect in its self-containedness. Right. And I think if, if Carpenter's Halloween is the the de facto sequel, I'm happy with that. We got two great movies that are clearly, there's a connection there of influence, but are still very different. Maybe we can talk about some of the differences in some of the animations. Yeah, I tell you what, let's do that. Uh, we're going to take a break and come back with uh, read from DraftKings, and then we're going to talk about uh, kind of the lineage of the slasher genre, and maybe some of the uh, other Christmas uh, horror movies that uh, are not quite as good as this one. So we'll be right back. All right, and we're back with a read from DraftKings. The 2021 basketball season is here. The teams around the league took the offseason off to retool and revamp and are ready to hit the court. DraftKings Sportsbook, America's top-rated sportsbook app, has rolled out another one of their can't-miss offers. To celebrate the, the return of basketball, DraftKings Sportsbook is giving uh, new players 100 to 1 odds on any featured matchup this week. That is right. All you have to do is bet $1 on any featured matchup this week, and if your team wins, you cash in a crisp $100. Uh, download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app now. 
And use promo code MHS when you sign up to get 100 to 1 odds on any featured matchup this week. That's code MHS for new players to get a shot at $100 in any featured matchup this week. For limited time, only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be 21 or older. Colorado only. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash Sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. All righty. Magnus. Yeah. The, 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 it's kind of a nebulous subject to talk about, you know, what inspired what as far as slasher genre, but and maybe a little more narrow uh, to start off with to talk about Christmas horror movies, um, of which there's not many, uh, and of which <laughs> that there's not very many good ones. <laughs> right, yeah, that's true. Um, there's obviously the famous Silent Night, Deadly Night. Mm-hmm. Which is actually not a bad movie. Um, no. It's not great. It's not. It's not. But it's not bad. A psycho Santa, you know, yeah. guy who is messed up by some nuns, and he goes out and kills people. I think that is relatable to all of us. Um, no. um, but there is also the sequel, which is one of the most one of the worst movies I've seen in my entire life. Mm-hmm. Um, but outside of that, you got uh, not many. Can you think of any others? Gremlins. A lot of people would say I would. I would just disagree. I would say Gremlins is not a horror film. It's not a horror movie. Yeah, it's a comedy horror. Maybe. Yeah, it's definitely set Christmas. Mm -hmm. Um, Nightmare Before Christmas is not a horror movie, but it's a horror themed Christmas movie. Right. Um, Silent Night, Deadly Night, One and Two, Krampus. There's been a million movies made about Krampus, the Germanic. Uh, folklore, evil Santa. Um, a lot of them are straight to home video, but the 2015 big budget version of Krampus was quite excellent. It was, and that I would say, Christmas horror movie. The acting is first rate. The sound design is amazing. Um, it's bleak. The ending is bleak. I extremely bleak. Yeah, but it also bridges that comedy horror thing. It it just it. There's a lot of very funny moments in that movie. It is it is a the, a weird amalgamation of of and you are absolutely right. The ending is just like oh my god, yeah. <laughs> the kid. It's like it is really bleak, but there's a lot of comedy in it, and it, it is so it it's very unique. I, I think I think I appreciate unique uh, movies like that. And um, you are right. People have tried to do the Krampus thing. Many times. Many times. Um, yeah. To little to no success. Uh, and there's people probably listening to this right now who are screaming at their, uh, at their iPhones or, or whatever device they're listening on that we are missing some movies. I, I can guarantee you we are. Uh, but Christmas horror doesn't stand out, right? <laughs> I, and, if, you know, it's, it's kind of odd. Although Black Christmas did start the holiday themed horror genre. Oh, right, right. right. Halloween, um, My Bloody Valentine. Right. Um, Happy Death Day. Yeah. Uh, I think there's a Mother's Day. Or yeah. I mean, anything you can think of, there's which, uh, which yeah. Eli Roth um, roundly satirized with his fake trailer for the horror <laughs> movie Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, which is fantastic. <laughs> 
but I think there should be more Christmas um, horror movies. You know, uh, there is a dark side to Christmas. Right. For a lot of people, there's a loneliness. There's a bittersweetness to seeing some family members. There's, you know, for a lot of people, it's a tough time. And I think, I think there's a lot there to be explored that hasn't hasn't really been yet. Um, Black Christmas being the exception, of course, it's an amazing film. There is, there's kind of a, and I think, I think when we look at well-executed horror movies, you, you, you brought up Gremlin, Gremlins. Um, I remember watching that as a kid, all right? I can't define it as a horror movie. And I don't think it was ever Joe Dante and slash Steven Spielberg were never intending it to be that. But it has terrific elements to it and a lot of these things will throw that stuff in there at the same time. It's all part of the same stew. Um, I know a lot of people who saw Gremlins as a kid and were really scared by some parts. I think if you were a certain age there were things in there that would have been really that could have been really terrifying to you. Um, You had the the cuddly fluffy gizmo on top of it and you have a really intoxicating brew Mm -hmm. of uh, horror and you know lovableness. Well, that movie has the Steven Spielberg's tropes in it of children in danger. Um, (laughs) Which has been a subject among all of us for a very long time, how Steven Spielberg movies have that theme. It's children in danger. (laughs) Yeah, which is why Temple of Doom is like the perfect Steven Spielberg movie, because that is the most most danger per square feet of Totally. <laughs> um, so moving on to the things that Black Christmas inspired, can you say a movie that was as obscure as it is was directly inspirational? Because maybe it's tangentially inspirational when you look at it via the John Carpenter lens, I guess, right? I think John Carpenter was the more immediate. Yeah. If there's a proximate influence and an ultimate influence, you know, Carpenter spawned a million slasher films. Mm-hmm. Black Christmas spawned Carpenter's Halloween. You know, right. it, it just influenced the one right person who could start like a whole other thing. So, you know, I don't know. I well, actually heard the of, of uh, My Bloody Valentine talk about when he made his movie, he was not aware of Black Christmas. It was only later after he made his movies that he went and watched Black Christmas as like, oh, I did everything they did in that movie. But he didn't know he was ripping off Black Christmas. Why? He thought he was ripping off Carpenter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's amazing. <laughs> that is a, that's a great line. The interesting thing about the... Uh, maybe this goes beyond the, the slasher genre and it goes right to horror. Is that horror fundamentally changed? And we, we talked about this on the Stephen King podcast. Um, horror changed I think mid-70s and it got it was a lot different by the middle of that and I think that a lot of these movies that came out during that time from about 74 with Halloween or excuse me with uh, Black Christmas to Halloween contributed greatly to the fundamental altering of the trajectory of the way horror was going and I think it went from a more from a fantastical kind of thing to more visceral, like uh, like these slasher films did. Definitely, I think um, you know the difference between seventies and eighties in horror. I think this 
the horror of the 70s was much more serious. Um, I feel like by the time the 80s kids were watching these movies, right. it was, it was, there was a lot more emphasis on it being fun, being a roller coaster ride, somewhat silly. You think about almost all of those series got more cartoony and less serious as they went on. The first Halloween is a miracle. The first Friday the 13th is very good. The first Nightmare on Elm Street is classic. Right. And then and then they all just got kind of fun. And we would go to watch Freddy to laugh, not to be scared eventually, you know. Oh, right. So um, I think the 80s kids were the first generation who grew up um, used to that mix of horror and comedy. Mm-hmm. And like laugh and be scared at the same time. I think that's that's the big difference. And also, I think there's fewer like serious social themes explored in the 80s. I think it was much more about just having a good time. Uh, not that there aren't exceptions, but you know, the the issues of uh, reproductive rights that you know Rosemary's Baby started or Black right. Christmas you know, is a good example of. Not so much present in Nightmare Three: The Dream Warriors. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's more about uh, how funny. What, what's the fun? What line can Freddy say that's hilarious as he? kills someone in a hilariously cartoonish way um, <laughs> but having said that i like both you know i love both well it, it there's there's social commentary in dawn of the dead there's not so much social commentary in any of the phantasm movies right um or you know the subsequent sequels to nightmare on m street uh which once again first movie perfect movie um Friday the 13th, first movie, great movie. And maybe, maybe one of the things you didn't see, and well, not maybe, definitely, one of the things you didn't see from Black Christmas is the franchisization of, of subsequently what uh, happened to films after Jaws, basically. Um, yeah, it's hard to imagine Black Christmas being made post 78 where it wouldn't have had five sequels right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i think um even psycho had five, what, five sequels they didn't come till right. later in the 80s, though, 80s but still yeah. um and by the way they're not all bad a couple a couple more really psycho 2 is not bad psycho 2 is very good um but black christmas is i think unique in its standaloneness although as we mentioned they tried to remake it twice and maybe that's its version of having sequels both of those remakes are terrible. And I, I just, it's disappointing that they feel the need to remake these things. Um, that's a movie that didn't need to be remade. It was a very 70s movie. Um, it's already been 100,000 times. Every slasher movie has some DNA Black Christmas. I know. It is, it's, 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 it's disappointing to just, it's kind of like The Thing didn't need a prequel, which was essentially a remake, you know. Uh, and they're they're doing a, a they're doing another one I heard that was in production pre pandemic of of another of the thing. It's just, but not to sound like an old guy because like sometimes a reboot or quote unquote a reimagining is is good, but in the grand scheme of things, sometimes the movies are a crystallization of their time. And I I think I think Black Christmas very much represents 1974. I mean, look, it's got Margot fucking Kidder in it. Like 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 four years later, she's in Superman. Like, it's, it's different. Well, I don't think you can have that sense of isolation anymore. I think it, you have to watch it in the context of its time because 
<clears throat> There's no such thing as isolation anymore. You know, if any one of those sorority girls who look like 35-year-old women um, had a cell phone, the movie would have been over in 10 minutes. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that sense of isolation of time and space the only way you can recreate it in a movie now might be in a place like Antarctica where there's no cell signals, right? That's the only way you can re recreate that. Well, look, you, you and I both grew up in an era with no, with pre cell phone, right? I didn't get a, I didn't get a cell phone until I was 25. So I, I had no concept of the whole, uh, I, I got, I got both here, but uh, most of my life was spent pre cell phone. Imagine the kids who were born in like 1995, 98, right around there, and some of whom were probably listening to this podcast, who only know the immediacy of communication and not being able to relate at all to a movie where there is, you just have a landline and yeah. you're cut off because that is your only option. Yeah. yeah. It's hard to believe there was a time when you know, even in my life, there were whole stretches of my life where no one knew where I was if I didn't tell them. You know? mm -hmm. So that, that sense of isolation that you get in movies like The Thing or Black Christmas, just so hard to do now, um, which is a shame because that's really where the dread comes from. You know, the, the feeling of being alone, the feeling of, I think I'm the only one who understands what's happening here. Yeah. yeah. And, and um, Let's talk about the deaths for just a second. Okay. Uh, there's there's not very many deaths in this movie. You have Claire, um, Barb. Yeah. Barb is the most uh, graphic one. This is yes, a girl who's killed in her bed right. by what appears to be a glass or porcelain yes. unicorn figurine. Yeah. And he's calling her Agnes as he's bringing it down. And he's, you see blood, you never see... Um, blade penetration right. of the body, but you do see the blood, and it's definitely the most graphic. Right. And then their funniest death, which is the matron of the house, who gets a hook in her mouth, I guess, as she's climbing up the stairs to look into the attic, and then he just like uses a pulley to haul her up. So all you see is like the the hook swinging down toward her head, and then underneath, uh, you see her feet being pulled up into the attic. So. You know, again, you don't see it. Right. You, your mind thoughts. It's definitely the funniest death. The first death of Claire is actually, I find one of the more disturbing. She's going into her closet packing because she's going away. Her dad's picking her up shortly. She's going away for Christmas break. And there's like a dry cleaning bag. And the guy is behind it and just wraps her right. head with that plastic. Right. And... I, you know, I've always been like terrified of drowning or suffocating. So for me, that like gets to my gut, lizard brain fears. Oh yeah. But I just, I just find that so uncomfortable to watch. That's the most it's disturbing not, one, for me. I think so. Yeah. yeah. And and then, you, you know, he pulls her up to the attic, and the plastic still wrapped around her head. Every time you see that body throughout the movie, but he's talking to it and rocking it. Mm -hmm. um, Sitting in the chair. Sitting in the chair, yeah. And that, that image is so uh, stark. Because mm -hmm. it was even on the poster at one point, I think, that lifeless oh, body with the her head. Um, her head's cocked to one then, side, and it's just, she's yeah, by the window, you know. Yeah, really disturbing. And then there's a cop who's killed, but that's off screen. Off screen. You don't see the death. And then 
there's the other girl. I forget the third girl's name. You don't see her death either. He no. she gets killed when she goes to check on Barb, who's dead. Yeah. And then later you see her body too. So yeah. so I mean I can only play five deaths and two of them are off screen. And it's Am it's, I wrong? Mm, yeah. No, you're right. And it, Oh Peter. Peter dies, but also Well Peter's not, not part of the but he's not but he's not part of the thing. He dies. But it's yeah. it's 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 as a result of mistaken <laughs> assumption, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> but I look how she's in the basement and you see him peering in. It's like this, you know, he's putting his hands up against the silhouette of him, yeah. like with the lights outside. That was pretty creepy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and that was that was great. Oh, um, they did a good job of making Peter look like a scary douche. They know? did. They did. Um, but he gets killed not by the killer, but through a mistaken identity. And so, but he's a death in the movie mm-hmm. that you don't see, and you mm-hmm. just see his body. So it's quite astonishing, you know, compared to the serial killer movies that came later, how little death there is in this movie, or how little is shown. Well, even in uh, the first Friday the 13th, it's not as gory as you think it is. Uh, no, there's. So. But it does take, and, and Friday the 13th is the one that takes the sex equals murder thing to, and, and I always thought that Friday the 13th was the one who established that. Um, <laughs> Halloween is, but it's like, it's the implication in Friday the 13th is you're having sex, I'm going to kill you. In Halloween, it's just there because he's just killing people, right? I, I, it's, it's, it's not, it's, it may be a subtext, not intentional, but it's, it's just, it, I think it's, I, I think it's coincidental to what he's doing in, in, in well, Halloween. I don't know, because, you know, the only one girl who survives is the one who, like, notoriously never has a date. The virgin? You know, dirty yeah. virgin. Yeah. In fact, the two other friends make fun of her because she doesn't have a date, et cetera. So, and then the other two girls are clearly fooling around or have boyfriends that they fool around with, even if they're not. And of course, one of them is in the act when, or had just finished the act when yeah. Michael Myers killed her. But you're right, there's no, it's, and it's, I think that's the thing about Black Christmas, there's no like carrying on like you would expect to see college kids doing in an American movie, maybe. No, they're a bunch of 30 year old women. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They're behaving like thirty-year-old women. It's, they're not behaving like. To, to, they, like they, uh, glass and not a red plastic cup. They, you know. Yeah. Like, there's no solo cups. You know. There's nothing. There's either, there's no the, there's no drinking game. There's no, there's none of the college atmosphere to it. Um, no one's in sweats or yeah. shorts. There's no. Letters, but... Yes. There's no crusty old dean. No. Although that matron is hilarious. Who drinks a bottle of liquor you hide in the toilet? Come on. It's the 70s in Canada. I bet it was just like uh, Crown Royal or something like that. <laughs> but the deaths, as, as few as they are, are very effective. Yep. As, as a cinema tool. Yeah. So what's the, you know, the first slasher film, if you want to call it that, Psycho had like one on-screen murder. Um, then the next one, Black Christmas, had you know maybe three or four. Yeah. And then Halloween had like five. Mm-hmm. And then like by the time of like Friday the Thirteenth Day, there's like a hundred kids that killed. By well, the yeah, first. I, I think there were seven kids were murdered in that, and it's like they 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 start cre- increasing exponentially. Now the latest yeah. of all of them is uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, which was eighty four. 
So that's the yeah. first of that 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 franchise. Uh, uh, Friday Thirteenth eighty. Um, yeah, it came right after. Um, and and what was the one with Jason Alexander? Uh, the the camping one. Uh, um, oh, what's that? Pretty Woman. No, no. Jason Isn't Alexander. It? Yeah, no, yeah, he was in that, but oh man, what was it called? Campfire? Uh, because that one was 81, and that one's very, very much influenced by Friday the 13th. Um, but anyway, we're off topic, but you know, there was these, there was this, which is a standalone film, and everything that came after that became a franchise. And that's very interesting to me how just four years later it sparked what became the horror of the of the 80s uh but this was before it and it kind of serves as a precursor standalone like the thing that was too early i guess yeah yeah it also set a template for not being at least in america as well known or appreciated as it would later become right you could say well harvard is the thing right um some other great classic horror movies well clark was not uh canadian uh certainly not john saxon but the rest of the cast i think was and it it was interesting to see because it's like margot kidder i think right around 74 73 74 did a movie with uh, jennifer salt called sisters uh, which was a brian de palma uh movie very underrated very a very good movie thriller uh just i some horror elements to it uh, it was a good, good movie, but she didn't get really known until uh, Superman. Yeah. So it wasn't like uh, what she was doing in Silent Night, Deadly Night, or excuse me, <laughs> Deadly Night. And got this. Movie Although I really enjoyed her last performance, crouching naked, muttering to herself behind a hedgerow in uh, in L.A. <laughs> performance of a lifetime. <laughs> For those who don't know, Margot Kidder sadly had some sort of. Yes, uh, she was not well. She was not well, uh, sadly. Yes, she was not. She was not well. But a heck of an actress, very funny, yeah, very funny. Great. A big, big influence on Steven Spielberg. Um, she was. Uh, those two were very good friends. Um, but Marty, did you use the air quotes when you said friend? <laughs> I did not, but I probably should have. Because I, I heard quotes. I don't know if you meant. What the <laughs> <laughs> I hope Spielberg got a piece of that before Clark did. That'd be hilarious. A t-shirt, I got there before Clark. <laughs> I got there before you. Oh, God. <laughs> you know, you could have been in the Sugarland Express, but you were Bob Clark. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I, yeah, this is all, it's, it's, it's like silent, uh, uh, I keep calling it to call it that. It's original title. Uh, Black uh, Christmas is well worth a watch. Uh, it's not a Halloween movie; it's a Christmas movie. Uh, both Matt and I, uh, Magnus and I, give it a thumbs up. Like, I, I, I absolutely. I, by the way, I have a theory that John Carpenter isn't the biggest ripoff of this movie. I contend that Die Hard is a ripoff of Black Christmas. Think about it: you got a guy upstairs picking people up one by one. <laughs> you just replace terrorists with sorority girls. Boom! You got Black Christmas. <laughs> This is the most tenuous, uh, diehard Black Christmas. 
connection that you're ever going to have. The same movie. <laughs> the, same same movie. <laughs> the, the matron would be, I guess, Hans Gruber. I don't know. Yes, Hans That's... Gruber. <laughs> no, don't, I don't think Hans Gruber would be. Hans Gruber would be the... Uh, uh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, it would be the matron. <laughs> well, oh they both God. have well facial hair. Let me just put it that way. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> all right all right this is going off the rails we got to get out of here uh well thank you all for joining us on the latest gen x movie show i'm sure magnus and i will be back to talk about another oh well we, we're going to talk about john carpenter we, we teased that the last podcast and we we did a head fake on them so yes we will be back with a, a one on john carpenter very soon and uh adios <laughs>